Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, yeah, that leaked draft opinion suggests the U.S. Supreme Court is ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. And the implications of that decision are far-reaching, and that includes the impact of LGBTQ rights. From Georgia State University, constitutional law professor Anthony Michael Christ is our guest. Also, school's out, and why it's considered a summer vacation, keep this in mind. Food insecurity among children during the summer increases. Those households with children have higher rates of food insecurity during this time. But there's one organization, there are many organizations, but one organization is hoping to provide meals to more than a half million one organization is hoping to provide meals to more than a half million students, area students. So we'll talk about all that. Now, first this, though, after thousands of voters crossed over to cast ballots in Georgia's primary last month, some Republicans are calling for an end to the practice. But as Susanna Capaluto reports, such a move could impact a lot of local county elections. In the Republican primary, incumbent Secretary of State Brett Raffensperger avoided a runoff against a Trump-supported candidate by about 55,000 votes. An analysis by the Associated Press found that 67,000 voters who asked for a Democratic primary ticket in 2020 took a Republican ballot this year and could have done so to vote against Trump candidates. That possibility has some Republicans cry foul, among them Vernon Jones, who wants to abolish Georgia's open primary. Two to three percent can change an election. Didn't Trump lose Georgia, they said, by 11,000 votes? Jones finished second in the 10th Congressional District despite being Trump's choice there and faces a runoff later this month. In Georgia, with its 159 counties where one party often dominates, people have more reasons to cross over, says University of Georgia political scientist Charles Bullock. If you live in DeKalb and you're a Republican, you're probably still going to ask for a Democratic ballot in most elections. If you're a Democrat and you're up in Forsyth for charity, you probably get the Republican ballot because that's going to be where the decision made as to who your sheriff and your county commissioner are going to be. Any changes in Georgia's open primary system need to go through the legislature. A spokesman for House Speaker David Ralston said there is no need to change the current primary system. Susanna Capoluto, WABE News. And speaking of voting, early voting starts today in some parts of metro Atlanta. As Raul Bali reports, Georgia's new election law gives counties less time but some flexibility. Georgia's 2021 election law overhaul shortened the time between elections and runoffs from nine weeks to just four. That has also shortened the time counties can have early voting. Cobb County starts today and runs through Saturday, then Monday through Friday of next week. Early voting in Fulton and Gwinnett County starts this Saturday. DeKalb County early voting locations open on Monday. While the start date is flexible, all Georgia counties must have early voting for the June 21st runoffs up and running by Monday and done by next Friday. Raul Valley, WABE News. In other news, non-English speakers interacting with the city of Atlanta now have access to live translation for city services. The city has launched iSpeak. It's a language access initiative with cultural competency training and live translation for more than 200 languages. We'll learn more from Emily Wu Pearson. One out of every 10 people in Georgia speaks a language other than English at home, and many are located in the Atlanta area. As Atlanta continues to grow as an international hub, the city has built cultural competency and language accessibility into its resources. iSpeak is one facet of this. Valerie Mills is the Senior Program Manager for Welcoming Atlanta, the city's office that handles immigrant affairs. We don't press pause on the way I interact with the city. I don't say, oh, until you speak English, you don't have to pay your water bill. Every city office that interacts with residents can call the live translation service that accommodates more than 200 languages. 
every city department has multicultural training specific to their work built into their onboarding process. Every city employee, part-time, full-time elected official, has to take that training every year because that way it becomes part of our culture, it becomes second nature to us. Mills says she's excited about this program because it shows to new Atlantans they don't have to be fluent in English in order to participate in shaping the future of the changing city. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. And finally, there's tons of money in Cobb County. Now, before y'all jump in your car and start going up 75, listen to the whole story. Cobb County has $147 million in federal pandemic relief dollars, and they're taking applications for or, from organizations that want to spend it to help other folks. So get back in your car. Alex Helmick has all the details. The cash comes from the American Rescue Plan Act, and Cobb officials have outlined areas where they want the money to go. Organizations or residents that help with community health or support services for vulnerable members of the area can apply, as well as groups that help boost the county's economy or keep it safe. The county is also taking applications from organizations looking to improve Cobb's infrastructure. Online applications are available at the county's website and are due by September 9th. Alex Helmick, WAB News. See, this is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Last year, during a TED Talk, longtime reproductive rights attorney Catherine Colbert told the audience this. I have argued two abortion cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, including the 1992 case Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is credited with saving Roe versus Wade. I was a co-founder of the Center for Reproductive Rights, and I spent 20 years of my career arguing on behalf of women who needed abortions and other reproductive health care. So my answer is depressing, but direct. <laughs> Roe versus Wade will be dead within the year. Catherine Corbett went on to envision what a post-Roe v. Wade society in the United States and beyond might look like. Well, months later, there was that leaked draft opinion revealing the U.S. Supreme Court is ready to overturn Roe versus Wade. The implications of that decision, we know, they're far-reaching, and that includes how this impacts anything related to the rights of LGBTQ folks. From Georgia State University, constitutional law professor Anthony Michael Christ joins me. He teaches constitutional law and employment dis- discrimination, and much of his research focuses on the law's treatment of vulnerable persons, especially concerning lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals. Professor, welcome. Hi, Rose. Thanks uh, for having me. I've asked so many constitutional scholars and experts and folks like you, uh, you read the draft, you're also a SCOTUS historian. How likely is it then in the final ruling that it could differ from the draft? Not likely? I, I think it's unlikely. Certainly, there have been times in Supreme Court history where you have a five to four split and some justice has a last minute change of heart and they swap their vote. Um, we, we saw that in the Obamacare case in 2012, mm-hmm. where the, the, the dissenting opinion was actually written as a majority opinion. Uh, we saw that in a religious liberty case last term. So it's possible that you have some vote switching or you have some substantive overhaul of the, of the leaked opinion that then becomes the majority opinion. Um, but I think the stakes are so high and folks know what's really at issue here that it's, it's less likely that you're going to see um, a, a major shift from what we saw. And we should note it's not uncommon the nation's high court is seemingly going to overturn itself from a previous ruling. We've seen this in so many instances before, gun legislation being one. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly we've, we've seen the Supreme Court change uh, on major pieces of doctrine. Um, you know, in the 1920s, there was this major right to contract and everything uh, that had to do with the person's ability to contract for work um, was, was held a sacrosanct. Um, and that changed after the New Deal. So that that's one example. Uh, of course, there is a change from from the separate but equal doctrine of Plessy versus Ferguson to desegregation of Brown versus Board. Mm -hmm. So the Supreme Court has has had these wild switches in doctrinal rules before. Um, but I but I think that this is just something that people, um, you know, it's it's different in the sense that you have an individual right now that a supermajority of the American people support. Uh, that the Supreme Court wants to undermine and take away. And in the past, the, the court has been more in step with, with what most people um, across the country want. So it's, it's a really precarious position that the court is in with this particular issue. I want to get your thoughts on this, too, because I've had some conversations with legal scholars and, and some other folks, because all of a sudden now we've, we've been reading and hear about these debates on whether or not Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided to begin with. What do you make of that? Those debates. Uh, <laughs> so I I come from a school of thought that generally says that the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, right, constitutional rulemaking, reflects the dominant political views of the time, right? Mm -hmm. So that so dominant political coalitions and social movements and 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 the grassroots efforts percolate from the bottom up. Um, and in order for that, those rights and, the, and those kind of rules that emerge from those social movements and those political coalitions to be sustained, you have to elect people who are also willing to sustain them. Um, and so Roe, I, I don't think there's any objective reading of the Constitution that says Roe was right, Roe was wrong. I mean, I think personally Roe was correctly decided because I am a believer in, in abortion rights and reproductive choice. Um, but, you know, the idea that there's some objective um, answer to constitutional questions, I think, is wrong. It's, it's really a byproduct of, of, of who we are as a people. In many ways, the Supreme Court and the decisions that come out of it are mirror reflections of who we are as a society and the political choices we make. Though, I think there's an argument what the court looks like and thinks now mm -hmm. um, is wildly out of step with what most Americans think. So, again, that kind of brings us back to we're in a very different precarious position now. But but I, I, don't, I don't think that Roe was wrongly decided. I think, in fact, it was it was grounded in a lot of uh, important con uh, you know constitutional text. And it was well reasoned. For our listeners not clear or familiar with the case that the ruling is going to talk about here. This is Dobbs versus Jackson, Women's Health Organization out of Mississippi. What are the arguments here in this case, Professor? Well, essentially, Mississippi was testing the validity of Roe versus Wade and a subsequent decision called Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which upheld the fundamental right uh, to an abortion or the basic right to an abortion. And uh, the, the, the rule has always been, or at least as of late, that once a pregnancy is viable, the state has a much more overriding interest in regulating pregnancies and banning uh, certain forms of abortion. Um, now, at 15 weeks, that's that's just not the case. At 15 weeks, there is no viable pregnancy. And so you saw states try to you know push it up. And, and Georgia also kind of was in this mix of uh, you know, pushing up uh, abortion regulations to say, well, maybe 15 weeks or maybe maybe we should uh, detect uh, cardiac activity and, mm -hmm. and maybe that should be the line. And so Mississippi is just one of these states that's been in this kind of, um, you know, larger swath of states which have been pushing the question of, well, how far back can we reverse row? Um, and Mississippi chose 15 weeks, but it seems like ultimately they might they might end row, right, which is not necessarily what Mississippi was probably out to do. Um, they were probably more trying to eat away at the, the edges of the rights. 13 states, and this is what we call what they call trigger laws. 13 states have these trigger laws that will restrict, ban or even criminalize abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned. No surprise to you that. This is just sort of waiting for for these yeah. states. Well, you know, I think a lot of legislators saw the writing on the wall as soon as, um, you know, Justice Scalia died and uh, the Republicans blocked Merrick Garland's appointment by President Obama to the court. Um, and when, you know, President Trump or former President Trump tried or got two Supreme Court justices on pretty soon thereafter uh, with the retirement of Anthony Kennedy, who was 
uh, fairly pro-choice. And then with the death of Justice Ginsburg and her successor, Amy Coney Barrett, mm-hmm. um, you know, anybody who had kind of two functioning brain cells, right, was like, oh, this is a very bad time if you're pro-choice for the court, you know, going before the court, um, you know, and so the political maneuvering immediately began um, and legislators did everything they could to get this issue before the court as quickly as they could to seize that opportunity, which they perceived as the first time since Roe that is that it was you know just highly likely um, that that Roe could get overturned. And we should note Michigan's, which is a Republican-led legislature, just this week, I believe, in asking a state judge to allow a, and correct me if I'm, I'm reading this incorrectly, 1931 abortion ban to take effect if SCOTUS indeed overturns this landmark ruling. That the state legislature, or you, you mentioned, no surprise, but going back that far and also getting getting gear, gearing up for a legal fight already before a decision is 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 coming down, asking yeah. a judge. So, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean that that's so the Michigan case is interesting because there are some states that just never repealed their antiquated abortion laws. Um, and so Michigan is one of those those places where, um, and, and Wisconsin's another one where you know the, these decades decades old uh, you know pieces of legislation might go back into effect if Roe versus Wade is overturned, in which case it will be up to either the legislators uh, in that state to amend the laws, or what Michigan is trying to do is find a constitutional right in the state constitution that says that there's a greater protection for women's rights under the state constitution and for an abortion uh, access right. And that's where the next wave of litigation will happen. It'll be in state courts under state constitutions and not in federal courts under the United States Constitution. What concerns or what are you watching here for in Georgia then? And we know that Governor Brian Kemp also getting gearing up for a gubernatorial battle once again with Stacey Abrams uh, has been a little bit mum, so to speak. He hasn't come right out and said what he would like to see done, but he sort of hinted. Yeah. So so as of now, there is a six week abortion ban Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's in litigation and being held in abeyance at the 11th Circuit, which is the Intermediate Court of Appeals right below the Supreme Court. And and there it's you know, the, the court is basically waiting for the Dobbs decision before it lets Georgia law either go into effect or potentially uh, deeming it unconstitutional. So if the Dobbs leaked opinion becomes actual constitutional law, then Georgia's law will inevitably go into effect, which means that at six weeks, um, essentially doctors will be looking for, um, you know, some kind of fetal, uh, you know, heart tone, Mm -hmm. right? It's not a heartbeat. It's just kind of a, it's just cardiac activity. Mm -hmm. If they detect that, then, then that's deemed a person under Georgia law. Um, and then there's consequences. If, if somebody has an abortion or terminates a pregnancy, um, after that period, you know, if that's a person, then we have murder charges on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, women who have uh, miscarriages or troubled pregnancies will be liable to be open, you know, to, to be investigated potentially by uh, law enforcement if there's some kind of indication that maybe they did it intentionally. I, I mean, we're, we're looking at a, a huge surveillance state that will be necessary to enforce Georgia law that I do not think that the people of Georgia or the people of the United States are quite ready for. And for those state legislatures that might enact a law that is no exceptions, which rape incest, the life of the mother. Professor, I'm curious, those, I, I'm sure we're, you can expect some type of legal challenge or is there no legal challenge? Because now the, the Supreme Court has kicked that kicked it all back down to the states. Is there then nothing? There's no recourse then for a law with with that with no exceptions? I, I, I would hate to say that there's absolutely no recourse. I mean, certainly, lawyers are, if nothing else, um, you know, ones, you know, love to come up with innovative arguments. Um, whether those will gain any traction in federal court, I think is highly unlikely if the entire issue of abortion is removed from the federal constitutional uh, regime mm-hmm. and placed back as a, you know, just a, a healthcare matter, you know, no different than any other. 
Um, and, and so it will become a, a political question for legislators. It will, might become a state constitutional question. You could mm-hmm. see, for example, a, a lawsuit under Georgia law claiming that the Georgia Constitution protects women's rights to reproductive health care more broadly than the federal constitution. Um, and Georgia actually has a much more robust, long history mm-hmm. uh, of protecting the right to privacy. But I, I don't suspect that will actually make uh, a lot of traction in Georgia either for an, uh, an expanded uh, abortion right, but it's possible. So, you know, I, I think it's I think the the opportunities to challenge laws, even that are that restrictive, are are very slim. But it, it is certainly possible. From Georgia State University, constitutional law professor Anthony Michael Christ joins me. And now let's talk then about what all this could possibly mean. I've I've seen this in quotation marks in so much that I've been reading, severe consequences for LGBT Americans. I think first what comes to mind for a lot of folks, of course, is the landmark uh, 2015 ruling that struck down all state bans on same-sex marriages. Uh, um, what do you see here? This is the part of the... the there are a lot of issues, but this is one that's a top for so many advocates and so many people um, that this could be the next the next decision from from the, the nation's high court. Just overtain, overturning this ruling. Oberfell yeah. versus so, Hodges. I, I think I think, you know, it, it is endangered, but it's not it's not the most likely negative consequence. So why is it endangered? Well, um, I think what's important is that we have to understand that the right to privacy is a bundle of rights. So at its core, the the right to privacy somewhat originated in this case called Griswold versus Connecticut, which was about married heterosexual couples seeking contraception access. Right. Mm -hmm. So so not necessarily an LGBTQ rights issue. And it was from the you know, from the 1960s. But from that, we 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 kind of developed a a constitutional doctrine, a series of of decisions that said, you know, not only is there a right to contraception for married couples, but for single couples. And also that means uh, privacy rights for, um, you know, for marital couples, which also means that there should be privacy rights for people who want to choose intimate partners of the same sex, which then we build on to and say, well, if there's a right to that, then why shouldn't that, you know, why should a same sex couple not be able to marry just like anybody else? Mm -hmm. But if you un, if you take one stick out of that bundle, that bundle is now a much looser bundle of sticks. So, you know, is it much more, you know, in danger of being reversed? Absolutely. Is it, is it inevitable? You know, probably not. I think the bigger question and the bigger fight will be on transgender rights mm-hmm. and the right to bodily autonomy for transgender people to seek gender affirming health care. But even if this the current Roe versus Wade in the current form that it is, which some say for legal for legal challenges is not very defined because now we're in a society in a space where when we talk about folks who identify as queer or, or non-binary queer women, non-binary people, transgender men who also use reproductive health care services, facilities, and for abortion access. Now you're in this other gray area, which is not even talked about or identified in Roe versus Wade. So you have a whole nother sort of a whole nother set of issues here and challenges. Yeah. I, one thing that I always tell people to remember is that in many respects, rights, the rights of people rise and fall together. They're all intertwined. So, uh, you know, so much of the anti-abortion movement has been an, a, a movement that has been anti-feminist and has been about traditional gender roles and things of that nature, which are the same kind of, you know, ideological forces, which have been anti-LGBT, right? That they've been, you know, well, marriage means these traditional gender roles and therefore same-sex couples don't apply or transgender folks uh, shouldn't be recognized or treated with, you know, the kind of gender affirming care that they need because of gender roles and are innate and that's the way we should treat them so so in many respects these issues much like you know they're tied by the right to privacy are tied by this kind of this this ideological perspective about the role of gender in society so they're they're all very much intimately tied to one another what have you been focusing on or what stands out to you in terms of what was in that leaked draft uh from the supreme court that still that you might that, that convinces you or, or might convince you that there is a chance that this still will be problematic for many states, if anything I, stood out. I think the one thing that stood out was just the lack of attention to women and, and to the needs of pregnant persons and to the consequences of not having 
healthcare access. I mean, the, the, the reality is, is this, is if states like Oklahoma are allowed to outright ban abortion without exception, women will die. If states like Missouri are allowed to burden women's ability to travel to other states, right, with and, and get reproductive health care there by by creating lawsuits, um, you know, for, for the right to, that burden, the right to travel, women will die. Um, I don't you know, it's it is it's not hyperbolic. It's not speculative. It's it's just what we know to be true. People will always have abortions when they need them. The question is, is whether the government will will allow them to happen in a way that is regulated, that is safe and, and that, you know, is equitable. Um, and if we don't do that, the, the consequences of it are life or death. And that opinion just took no consideration of that whatsoever. It, it just it just completely ignored the needs of everyday Americans. You and I both know it's not uncommon that sometimes in terms of legislation here in the United States, it can spark or impact from other parts of the world. Many people see that if indeed Roe versus Wade is overturned, that that might spark some other movements or similar like legislations in other parts of the world. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. One of the one of the most important things I always tell people is that uh, policies produce politics, um, and it is it is true in all sorts of uh, of different you know arenas. But here, it very well could be the case that there is a a social movement that uh, comes out of it, a political movement, a backlash. It's not inevitable though. Um, and so I think what people, the, the question I'm going to have is, you know, how does this motivate or not motivate people in the run up to the midterm elections? How does this, how does this affect the, the decision making and the calculus that people have um, going into November of this year? Uh, that's, that's a really big open question. It's very much possible, though, that we could see a backlash, but maybe, maybe we won't. And that's actually what the majority of the Supreme Court, I think, is banking on. I have an email from a listener here who says, Rose, ask the professor again because it wasn't clear to me. Does he believe that this would definitely threaten same-sex marriages, those laws, that law? I, I think it's unlikely. It's, it's certainly, I don't want to say it's implausible, but at the same time, I think that the, the bigger danger truly is to contraception access because many, uh, many pro-life forces will claim that different forms of contraception are abortifacients and therefore should be you know, banned. And, and so that, I think, is an area of real concern, immediate concern. And the rights of transgender individuals. I, I think gender-affirming health care is, is acutely endangered by, by Roe uh, being overturned. But same-sex marriage, yes, it's, it's, it's you know, more endangered than it would be before Roe is overturned. But I don't, think it's, I don't think it's on the chopping block by any means. Really? I can understand Elizabeth yeah. being surprised by that. Yeah. I, so I, I think the Supreme Court, you know, there, there, I mean, there's two justices who are willing to to re to revisit Obergefell, Justice Alito and Justice uh, Thomas. But, you know, I, I just you know, I don't think you're going to get a, a justice, Ro a Chief Justice Roberts. You're not going to get a Justice Gorsuch uh, to, to really buy into this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't want to say never. And I, you know, it's it's hard for me because on the one hand, you know, I don't want to be an alarmist. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I'm a I'm a realist and I recognize that, you know, there isn't a so there isn't the kind of social movement right now, um, you know, that that the pro-life forces have put out, um, which has kind of been, uh, you know, their, their crowning achievement has been this six three Supreme Court. Um, so I, I you know, again, I don't want to be an alarmist. I, I think there are other things that are much more imminently dangerous. But I will say uh, what concerns me about the trajectory of LGBTQ rights more broadly is if you look at the anti-trans legislation, you look at mm -hmm. some of the don't say gay legislation, you, you look at the kind of hostility that is percolating in states from Florida to Texas and, and all across the country towards LGBTQ people and LGBTQ rights. Um, you know, I, I think that we need to be you know, cognizant of the fact that that we can go back in time. There was a time in the 1920s and the 19, you know, the early 1930s where LGBTQ people were, more, were much more accepted as a matter of law and social custom than they were in the 19, late 30s, 40s and 50s and 60s, right? Mm. So we can go back and we need, to be, we need to be cautious about that. But I think we also need to be you know, cognizant of, of what is much more imminently endangered than, than, you know, than other things. And as we begin, begin to wrap up, I have another question from an emailer who wants it, and I think I know the answer is, but says, can the professor just talk about how this will overwhelmingly dis, uh, impact women of color and poor women? Absolutely. I mean, so the, the reality is, is that 
people of means, women of means, um, and disproportionately white women will have the resources and the ability to travel to other states um, and and seek reproductive health care elsewhere. And and that's, you know, that is that's always been the reality. And so as more states clamp down and as it becomes more necessary to travel further for reproductive health care, women of color, women of, uh, of you know lesser means are going to be overwhelmingly disproportionately impacted and harmed um, and their lives and welfare endangered by a decision like the one that I think is coming in Dobbs. And because you are a constitutional law professor, we'd like to get them all in. A listener wants to know your thoughts, whether the divisive concepts bill violates the First Amendment. So you get it all here, Professor. <laughs> oh, and a First Amendment question. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, when when you when you regulate primary uh, primary schools, uh, First Amendment questions become a little bit more uh, tricky because teachers, unlike you know higher ed professors, have less constitutional free speech rights to say whatever they want. Um, I, I think the Georgia law is probably as insulated as it can be from a First Amendment challenge. Uh, you know, I, I will I will leave that to the courts <laughs> to see what happens there. Now, I'm not out in Vegas, but I know there are some odds on whether or not we will ever get to the bottom of who leaked the draft. Do you have any insight there? <laughs> oh, no. I, I think, the, I, I, you know, it could it could be a justice. It could well be a clerk. I mean, there, there's a lot of different you know, choices. There's a lot of different reasons. A liberal might want to leak it as much as someone on the right might want to leak it. Um, you know, I will, I will leave that to, to history and to time and to the marshal of the, of the court who's currently investigating the leak um, you know, to, to kind of suss out what, you know, who, who did it or who might have done it. Yeah. But the marshal, they don't have any experience. <laughs> this is a, <laughs> if you listen to this, if you listen to Nina Totenberg this morning on NPR, she's like, it's a mess up there. So, oh, but, but, oh, seriously, yeah. but seriously, this is, I mean, this is a breach. And I mean, for you look, it's a serious breach and it says a lot in terms of, you know, how we, we already say our nation is, is fractured in terms of uh, being a democratic state, small D folks in terms of democracy. So, you know, it's a serious business when a, a draft gets leaked. Yeah. I, you know, the Supreme Court has been in politically precarious positions before in the 1930s, in the in the you know, in, in the late 1860s, early 1870s. Um, you know, it's 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 often put been put in the crosshairs of uh, different political crosswinds. And I think that that's where the court is in is in now. It's not a, it's not common, but it's not un, unknown in American political history. And so the, the institutional decay that we're seeing, mm-hmm. um, I think, is a sign of that that broader political discourse and and kind of uh, coalitional disintegration that we've seen over the last four or five, six years. And you think the ruling could come down in the next week, two weeks? <laughs> well, we've got 29 decisions left mm-hmm. as of today. Um, I, I think we're we're probably going to wait until the end of June, very last week of June, early July even, for this decision to come out. That's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm loath to make a bet about the Supreme Court ever, but I, I, I doubt that we'll see this before the last week of June. All right. Georgia State University constitutional law professor Anthony Michael Christ, thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. Our listeners enjoy when we have the experts on. So we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. It's estimated 22 million children get most of their nutrition and caloric intake from free and reduced price school meals that they get during the school year. But then summer comes, and these households are among millions needing food assistance. Now, yeah, there are some state and local programs, but as most advocates will tell you, reaching everyone in need is challenging. And keep in mind, the pandemic still exists. According to the national nonprofit Feeding America, now in 2020, over 60 million people turned to food banks and community programs for help putting food on the table. Now here locally, Must Ministries has a goal to provide meals to more than, they want to provide more than a half million meals to area students. Returning a closer look is Dr. Dwight Ike 
Rygard, Rygard, he's president and CEO of Must Ministries and senior pastor of Piedmont Church in Marietta. I like to call him Ike, Dr. Ike. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Rose. It's an honor to be back with you today. You know, when we spoke last time, you all were busy because you were helping households and with food. And we were now what we call the height of the pandemic. Recap for me what you all were able to do and so many organizations here. And if, if I had time to thank all of them, so many organizations stepped up uh, during the, in 20 and 21. But what you all were, were doing then? Well, it was a remarkable time for every nonprofit that's in the area of taking care of human need. And what we made the decision to do here at Must Ministries was to focus on two things. It was on March the 13th, and we said we're going to focus on housing and we're going to focus on food. Because normally we're also helping people with clothing. We're helping people to be able to get jobs. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a medical clinic that helps to take care of people's needs. But at that point in time, we felt like that we need to narrow our focus. And in those two particular areas, and arose in a normal year in like 2019, we would have served 33,000 unique individuals. But over the two years of COVID, Mm -hmm. we served about 275,000 people. Now, some of those numbers were duplicated, so it's not exactly apples to apples and oranges to oranges, but over 275,000 people were served during those two years. And we went from serving about 1.1 million pounds uh, of food uh, a week to uh, 3.1 million pounds of food. So it was uh, quite an amazing journey for us. I had a conversation just the other day with Elizabeth and Ofemo Malami, who run Hosea Helps, and we've talked about this. Listen, when it comes to the face of those who are hungry or the face of poverty, it's changed. You know, it's not who folks think it is. And and I think it was uh, Elizabeth Omalami who talked about Folks coming up, driving up in some, you know, in Hummers. And and if you want to base that, you know, on on the household, you can. Of course, you don't know that. But when we talk about who is in need of food assistance, it may not be who folks typically think it should be or would be. Well, that's absolutely true. And, you know, suburban poverty is the fastest growing segment of poverty in this country. And we tend to think of it as being more of an urban issue But we certainly found here at Must Ministries that it's not. It's something that we deal with every day. And because of it being in the suburbs, uh, perhaps it's the reason that about 84% of the people that we serve at Must Ministries are women and children. Mm -hmm. When you looked at all five of the different categories of where we're meeting people's needs, we call those wraparound services. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's pretty stunning to realize the mass majority are women and children and often with in, in counties like i said there are a lot of there are, there are a lot of organizations out there but sometimes it there's a requirement well are you a resident of this county or do you live in this county and and depending on where you are you know you may be in a county that may not have as many options for you in seeking assistance you all try to serve more than one county we do. We, we believe in serving everyone that we could possibly serve uh, to the last can that's on the shelf. Uh, that's just the way we've been created. It's our culture of what we do. So during the pandemic, there were over 60 different ca- people from counties that came to us to be able to have their needs met. And there were just tremendous partnerships that were formed. You saw a lot of people working together that hadn't worked together in the past, a lot of collaboration. And I'm a huge believer that a rising tide lifts all the ships. Mm -hmm. And we were able to see a lot of organizations come together and accomplish so much. And the only thing that exceeded the size of the need was the level of generosity that people were showing. You know, I've had this conversation, too, about sometimes there can be a lot of, of what we call red tape. And, you, and folks like in your organization and what so many other are doing, you have to collect data and you have to have this information. And sometimes that while it's important, you know, you're trying to just get the food and help people. How have you all been able to maneuver through if, if you had any issues with red tape? And what have you learned over the years and gotten better at as a as a nonprofit, as an organization, so that you don't have to deal with all this? Well, I think... In other words, I'm asking, how's your bookkeeping? 
the bookkeeping is doing fine because I, I, if I'm going to have a prison ministry, I prefer it to be from the outside. Uh, so we certainly try to do everything right. But just like when I gave you the numbers, 33,000 unique individuals in 2019 versus 275,000 uh, people that we dealt with during the two years of the pandemic, we had to change the way that we were keeping up with people. And that's why I pointed out that the 33,000 were unduplicated. The 275,000 were people that were duplicated because one of the simple things that we did was we went from giving out groceries in our standalone locations, of which we have three, uh, we went from uh, giving out food on a quarterly basis to making it once a month. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, we have pantries that are in schools. We have 30 physical locations of pantries that serve over 100 schools in Cobb and Cherokee County and soon to be in Fulton County. And we're very excited about that new opportunity. But we were serving about 600 families a month during the pandemic in those locations. So 30 physical locations serving over 100 schools, and um, that's where the school social workers identify the families, and we love that particular model because other businesses and other organizations, civic organizations in the community come together to work with us, and we so enjoy uh, creating our neighborhood pantries. Ike, do you also, did you know if you served a fair percentage of, of households that may have one or more undocumented folks living in the household? I'm sure we have. Mm -hmm. And that's something, again, that we're there to serve as many people as we can. Uh, I don't think hunger knows whether someone's a documented person or not a documented person. And so we've just tried to reach out as best we can. Now, when it comes to coming into our shelter, uh, we try to do the job there. And since I talked to you last year, uh, we went from a 72-bed shelter to we now have a 136-bed shelter with 36 other respite beds for inclement weather. Mm -hmm. And so we immediately filled that building up. So the need is still there with inflation, all the other things that are taking place. Uh, we know that we've still got a lot of work ahead of us. The pandemic has backed off in some ways, mm -hmm. but we still see that there's a tremendous need moving forward. And Ike, with the summer lunch program, this is made possible by just volunteers and donations. Is that true? It absolutely is. You know, we're fortunate uh, that we do some work with the USDA, but the USDA, for instance, in Cobb and Cherokee County, there's certain sections of the county where the USDA program will work. There's other sections of the county where it doesn't. And so what do you what mean? Where did, why? Well, uh, because uh, you look at the schools where the free and reduced lunch programs are, mm -hmm. and that helps to determine a lot of the area where they're going to invest in mm -hmm. as far as the USDA is concerned. Hmm. Now, as far as must is concerned, we're going to go into every area that we can. And so we supplement what the USDA program does with what we call kids kits this mm -hmm. year. We've had to adjust the model. You know, our mission is the same, to serve our neighbors in need. And we're married to our mission, but we date the model. And the model this year is that we go out, we take the USDA food uh, where we can, and then we supplement with our other materials so that each child is getting uh, five meals, five breakfast meals, five lunch meals, five snacks, 10 drinks. And now our model is we do that one day a week. It started on June the 1st. Mm -hmm. It will culminate on July the 29th. And the USDA program this year is only running through the month of June. That's why we need people's support and going mm -hmm. to our website and seeing the different things that we need for those kids kits how are you all getting the the kits to the kids we have a distribution system and we've perfected that in so many ways and last year the usda program lasted through the entire summer and we basically served as the distribution model 
Uh, we go to churches. We go to apartment complexes. Mm -hmm. We were going to schools last year. We look for a lot of different areas where we know that there are strong pockets of need, and we go there. So last year, about 5,400 children were served. It was 540,000 meals that were distributed. We believe our numbers will be closer by the end of the summer to 6,000 children on average each week. And we believe that once again, we'll top over a half a million meals for those children. Ike, what does that say to you about the need, and I've asked this question before, and, and I know that it's for some people, they say, why do you always ask that question? Well, because <laughs> I want to know the answer, number one. But number two, because for some folks who listen, this is why I ask the question, because I hear it when you email me or you see me somewhere. For some folks, they just don't understand the severity of this. You know, they, they hear the word food insecurity. They hear we talk about poverty all the time. But, you know, there's a reason why we ask organizations to come on and talk about the folks that they, they serve. And there's a reason why we ask people to come on and share their stories. You know, um, every how many reports do I have to say that 70 percent of Americans do not have a four hundred dollars reserve for an emergency? What does that tell that, you? That's right. Well, it, it tells you there's a gross inequity in this country. And uh, that the divide seems to be getting larger, not smaller. Um, a story that I illustrate is that one of the schools where we put in a pantry is called Green Acres Elementary off the South Cobb Drive at Pat Mill Road area in Cobb County. And the day that we were opening the pantry, the principal there, Ashley Mize, as we were getting ready to cut the ribbon, you know, it's an exciting day. Um, there were tears that were rolling down her cheeks. And I said, are you okay? And she said, let me explain it. Then she started speaking to the whole group. And she said, the reason I'm crying is a few weeks ago, a little girl caught me in the hallway right before school and said, uh, Miss Mice, can you get me something to eat? Because I'm very hungry. And she said, well, darling, did you not get to eat breakfast this morning? She said, no, ma'am. And she said, and I didn't get to eat dinner last night. And Miss Mize said, well, why didn't you eat dinner? And she said, because it wasn't my turn. Yeah, I've heard that. That, I've heard that devastated yeah. our hearts. You know, all of us standing there must, if we ever knew that our job really counted, we knew in that moment for that child that we were really making a difference. And so being able to go out and with what we're doing, there's so many other great organizations that are helping to meet this need. And we're so thankful because the need really is so great. And we're just feeding the children. We're not feeding the adults in that family. When we're going out, our target is mm -hmm. to go there and to feed those children. As we wrap up, and I was going to ask this anyway, but I have a listener who wants to know what counties can they find must ministries in? Uh, we are, of course, now in Fulton County. And by the way, we now have a, a bus, a mobile bus that goes out into the community. And you can go on our website at mustministries.org, find out more about that. Mm -hmm. We're serving mm -hmm. about 300 families I know in Fulton County right now through the must mobile bus. And so we're in uh, Douglas County, uh, we're in Bartow County, we're in Gilmer County, we're in Cherokee, we're in Cobb, we're in Fulton County, we're in Gwinnett County mm -hmm. as well. Most of our work out there is done through uh, North Metro Baptist Church, and there are over 3,000 meals that were served out there uh, to children through that one particular location. We want to increase and so the more volunteers and the more organizations who go, we would love to have Must in Gwinnett County. We'd love to be there to help you meet your need even more. And like you said earlier, you know, it takes a collaboration. It takes so many folks coming together. And we've seen this during the pandemic. We saw it during the height of the pandemic. But then at the end, you know, again, of this conversation, and I'm asking like I ask everybody else, what what's not working in order to tackle this from a national standpoint where no household should have to go without food. At least they have access to a resource, whether they're in rural, urban, somewhere in between, whether you're in Montana, or Miami or Atlanta or Anchorage, Alaska, or whatever. What's, what's not working then? 
I think the inequities that we see in our society, that when you see the wages that people are being paid. Uh, I have people say to me and Rose, you know, I come from a pastor background and people will say to me things like, well, doesn't the Bible say if a person's not working that they shouldn't eat? And I go, but what about when a person's working three jobs? The vast majority of people we deal with are, I, I don't like the term, but they're working poor. They're working. They're working two or three jobs, but they're not making a livable wage. Mm -hmm. And so many of them are transportation challenged to be able to get to jobs. The housing inequity. Look, look at what has taken place. We had Jack Harden come and speak to our board at Must, and Jack, along with Shirley Franklin, head up the Atlanta Regional from Commission Gateway, of Jack from Gateway down and down. Yes, I know him well. Uh, Amazing guy. And, and he gave us that statistic that 47% of people in Metro Atlanta, if they had a $500 expense, could not meet that expense. A flat tire can wreck our client's entire budget. Mm -hmm. And we have to get a livable wage. We have to have affordable housing. We have to have transportation that works for everybody and not just the select few. All right. Dr. Dwight. Ike Rigard, President and CEO of Must Ministries, Must Ministries and Senior Pastor Pete Mott Church in Marietta. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for what you all are doing to help so many people, and especially for kids this summer. Thank you. Well, thank you for highlighting us in our 27th year of doing this, Rose. Y'all get no, but keep doing it. <laughs> your show makes a difference. Thank you. Appreciate that. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Rezell. And Daniel was also our engineer today. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, as you all do, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online. It's always there, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And if you like to listen to Closer Look again because you just love the show, it rebroadcasts at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast for on demand, on the go, for all you hip folks that can't listen at 1 p.m. Uh, subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.